0: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery. Perhaps no one has been a bigger beneficiary than the U.S., which jumped from something like 16.8% of global hash power before the ban to now more than 35%. How does that relate to the regulatory conversation here? Well, it means that U.S. regulation around Bitcoin mining would and will have a proportionally bigger impact now on the shape and the face of the Bitcoin industry. One major economic jurisdiction, going dark, as China has, raises the relevance of the decisions that are made in all the other jurisdictions in which crypto operates. Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by NYDIG and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Tuesday, October 26th, and today we are talking about news that suggests that the SEC may be winning the -the behind-the-scenes battle to regulate stablecoins. Now, I just want to talk first about regulation and coverage of regulation on this show from a meta perspective. Anyone who's been listening frequently has seen this year that there is a ton of regulatory focus, and here's why. I believe there is nothing more consequential to the next phase of the crypto industry than where the regulatory questions, particularly in the U.S., but in general around the world, land over the course of the next year or so. Let's take the example of China to make this point. When the first regulatory news started coming out of China in April and early May, it seemed like just more of the same. It seemed like the People's Bank of China reinforcing previous policies that, while yes, limiting the way that people could interact with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, didn't really say anything new. That, of course, changed towards the end of May when the vice premier of the CCP got involved and actually suggested what would become the China Bitcoin mining ban. That created a major shift in the global dynamics of hash power and Bitcoin network security. What's more, more recently, the Chinese trading ban has impacted significantly how Chinese citizens can interact with cryptocurrencies, as well as the global dynamics of exchanges that used to service those customers. The point is that what seemed at first to be likely irrelevant ended up being supremely relevant in terms of the global makeup of the crypto community. But you protest, look at how Bitcoin hums merrily along. Who cares? Honey Badger certainly don't care. And that's true in the sense that the conversation about regulation and government involvement with this industry has never really been a question of whether governments could kill Bitcoin or kill crypto or not. That sentiment has always been absurd on the face of it. But these sort of interactions with government aren't just about whether crypto lives or dies. It's about the context in which we all operate. What do I mean by that? Well, China's complete banning of both Bitcoin mining as well as crypto trading has changed the operating context for U.S. regulators and the U.S. crypto industry. And in some ways, it has raised the stakes pretty significantly. As I mentioned before, hash power shifted dramatically out of China after the Bitcoin mining ban we saw basically a 50% drop in hash power within a few weeks of that ban's announcement, and over the last few months, as hash power has come back online, it's come back online in different places. Certainly border countries to China, including Kazakhstan and Russia, have been big beneficiaries, but perhaps no one has been a bigger beneficiary than the US, which jumped from something like 16.8% of global hash power before the ban to now more than 35%. How does that relate to the regulatory conversation here? Well, it means that U.S. regulation around Bitcoin mining would and will have a proportionally bigger impact now on the shape and the face of the Bitcoin industry. What about regulation around the enterprises that build on and surround crypto? Well, again, one major economy, one major economic jurisdiction, going dark, as China has, raises the relevance of the decisions that are made in all the other jurisdictions in which crypto operates. So again, the discussion of regulation as whether Bitcoin or crypto lives or dies has always been silly, but I still contend that this next phase of the industry is going to be shaped by how the current regulatory discussions play out. And going back to China for a second, I do think that the actions of this year have now set the relevant context. The US has jumped almost by accident into a potential leadership role by virtue of China's bow out. And in many ways, what the US regulatory regime decides to do next will shape whether this polity builds on that lead, or whether crypto and crypto companies and crypto entrepreneurs flow to other places that have a different take. Within that, one of the most important quandaries in the U.S. is, of course, who regulates what. For as long as I've been in this industry, there's been a classic trope of discussion around U.S. regulation where the IRS sees crypto as property, the CFTC sees crypto as commodities, the SEC sees crypto as securities, and you get the joke everyone sees in the crypto industry their thing, the thing that they are tasked with regulating and keeping track of. So perhaps then it's not surprising that there has been behind the scenes something of a regulatory turf war. The CFTC has done the most actual regulating. Previous leaders in the CFTC have said that Ether and Bitcoin were, in their estimation, commodities. During the end of the Trump administration, the OCC, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, which is the U.S.'s biggest bank regulator, emerged as a major player in the crypto regulation space, particularly around stablecoins. Brian Brooks, who was at the time running the OCC and who was, of course, the former general counsel at Coinbase and would go on to be very temporarily the CEO of Binance U.S., made it much easier for banks and financial institutions to interact with stablecoins, which was obviously transformative in how those instruments were being used in both the crypto economy as well as finding their way into the traditional economy. The SEC has, of course, been for a long time, if you were just to look at Bitcoin and crypto Twitter, the arch nemesis, right? The great villain of this industry. For the Bitcoiner specifically, that's been about their unwillingness to consider instruments like a Bitcoin ETF for fear of volatility or market manipulation. And for everyone else, for other crypto industry folks. It's been because they seem so hesitant to even explore the possibility that crypto assets might have a different feel, flavor, texture, and ultimately regulatory need than securities that are regulated under 90-year-old statutes. Now, many in crypto thought for a while that the Gary Gensler-led SEC would be more friendly to crypto, given his background and interest in the crypto industry and in the blockchain space more broadly. But that friendly attitude has not always come to pass. It's been clear that this Gensler-led SEC has been trying to get more power relative to other peers in terms of what it's allowed to regulate. It has enlisted allies such as Elizabeth Warren to try to make that case. And finally, the other actor that's worth noting is the Treasury Department. The Treasury Department under Janet Yellen emerged in a big way during the infrastructure battle as something of the Wizard of Oz when it comes to the Biden administration's take on crypto. They were the ones who were pushing Senator Rob Portman and his allies to get that crypto provision into the bill, and then were fighting against the amendments that would have made it clear who was and wasn't subject to the new definition of a broker, which caused so much consternation among this industry. Nidig which is the sponsor of this podcast, is at Money 2020 this week. So if you're in the banking industry and you're thinking about offering Bitcoin to your customers, bring your questions over to the Nidig booth. Throughout all this turf battle, the aspect of the crypto industry that has been perhaps most in focus is stablecoins. And there are two major reasons for that. The first reason has to do with financial stability. Many regulators are worried about the opacity of the instruments that are actually used to back stablecoins. In their heads, and sometimes not so in their heads, they're articulating what-if scenarios. What if there is a run on stablecoins at the same time as the value of the commercial paper backing one of them is collapsing? What would happen then? And what if those instruments are held by not just crypto players, but big opaque hedge funds? And that causes a financial contagion which spills over into other parts of the financial markets. We've discussed this before, but I think in general, regulators have two modes of concern. Mode one, which is sort of easy mode or calm mode, is investor protections. Mode 2, which is the one that particularly folks who lived their way through and in some cases regulated their way through the great financial crisis, have much more anxiety about is that financial stability piece. Now on top of that, there is a concern that these instruments are too dollar-like, and that means inherently a loss of control. And I think this is where the Treasury Department comes into all of this. There already exists in the world today an immense euro-dollar market. These offshore dollar-like instruments are basically used in substitution for dollars but come from institutions that aren't regulated by U.S. financial regulators. Eurodollars already cause problems for monetary policy. Basically, if monetary policy is in part about expanding and contracting the supply of money, then having more than half of the quote-unquote dollars out there be dollar-like things that aren't actually subject to that monetary policy pretty well undermines the efficacy of that monetary policy. At least that's the thesis of some, like Jeff Snyder, who basically argue that the reason that the Fed leans so hard into signaling, into press conferences, into marketing their policies, both the ones that they have and the ones that they think are coming, is that their best tool is actually getting the market to behave as though they'd made a change, rather than actually force the market to wait for the change to happen to make the shift. So... Imagine this financial stability concern, coupled with the loss of control of monetary policy concern, but amplified by the entrance of a huge player. This is already concerning enough for regulators as they watch these stablecoins go from a few billions of dollars to hundreds of billions of dollars, but what if someone like Facebook actually created an alt dollar? Remember, regulators' interest in this space really goes back to the announcement of Libra. That was, as I've said before and I will inevitably say again, the starting gun for this modern phase of regulatory interest in the crypto industry. All of that brings us to now. Yesterday, Bloomberg published a piece called The SEC Gets Path to Reign in Stablecoins as U.S. Ways New Rules. Wall Street's top watchdog won concessions in a debate between U.S. regulators over how to protect stablecoins, clearing a path for the Securities and Exchange Commission to crack down on the $131 billion market. First paragraph. The Treasury Department and other agencies will specify, in a highly anticipated report expected to be published this week, that the SEC has significant authority over tokens like Tether, said people familiar with the matter. The report will also urge Congress to pass legislation specifying coins should be regulated similarly to bank deposits, one of the people said, asking not to be named because discussions are private. So, the article makes clear that SEC Chair Gensler has been pushing for this authority behind closed doors. He wants to be able to regulate stablecoins now and not just to wait for Congress. And this gets to the key tension here. Earlier versions of this report apparently called for lawmakers to pass legislation to create a new type of bank charter for stablecoin issuers, but Genzer has been arguing that the SEC already has clarity to oversee these tokens when they're involved in investment transactions. There are definitely big differences of opinion here. In September, when Chair Gensler was testifying before the Senate, Senator Pat Toomey pushed him on whether he thought stablecoins were securities. When Gensler said they very well might be, Toomey responded, to me a stablecoin doesn't meet the second prong of the Howey test, that there has to be an expectation of profits from the investment. If it doesn't meet the Howey test, it looks to me like it's not a security. Now maybe you've got a good argument for why some are and some aren't, but I think we need to have clarity on this. So again, what he's referring to, for those of you who haven't gone deep on this, the Howey test is the commonly held standard for securities. It's from an old court case in the 30s, and there are four prongs of this so-called Howey test. For something to be a security, it has to have, one, an investment of money, two, the expectation of profits, three, that investment has to be in a so-called common enterprise, and four, it has to be based on the efforts of a promoter or third party, i.e. it's not based on the work you do yourself. So what Toomey is calling into question is this expectation of profits. If a stablecoin doesn't return any sort of interest or dividend, does it have the expectation of profits? On the flip side, one conception of how some are thinking about stablecoins, including notably Fed Chair Jerome Powell in recent testimony, is akin to money market funds. From that loveliest of resources Investopedia, quote, A money market fund is a kind of mutual fund that invests in highly liquid near-term instruments. These instruments include cash, cash cash-equivalent securities, and high-credit-rating debt-based securities with a short-term maturity, such as U.S. treasuries. Money market funds are intended to offer investors high liquidity with a very low level of risk. So that sounds similar, right? But again, what we get into is this issue of the expectation of profits. Money market funds often come with an interest rate, while stablecoins don't have an interest rate. They offer no promise of anything, so it's different, right? Maybe then it's just a bank account, right? I mean, an earlier version of this treasury document apparently suggested a special type of bank charter for stablecoin issuers, so maybe that's the right framework. The point of all of this is that it's confusing, right? Let's try to wrap up by breaking apart some of the pieces of this. First, in my estimation, it is somewhere between okay to actively good for this conversation to be happening. Stablecoins are frankly a better market instrument than today's version of quote-unquote digital dollars. There should be a focus on figuring out how to make them work in the broader economy. What's more, from a crypto perspective, you don't have to be a tether truther to think that the more transparent these things are, with their proof of reserves, the better this industry is going to function long-term. Second, there is an interesting discussion to be had around DeFi and whether DeFi stable coins need to have a wholesale separation of labeling from fiat-backed or redeemable coins. Adam Cochran tweets with the discussion around regulating stable coins, I think we as an industry have to get something clear stablecoin equals backed by one USD or other fiat held in trust. Anything else shouldn't be called a stablecoin and wrapped up in those regulations. Third, there are real questions of jurisdiction here. In other words, what authority does the Treasury Department actually have to say that the SEC has authority here? If the SEC did have authority here, wouldn't they just already be asserting it? And if the Treasury Department was convinced the SEC already had authority, why would they also be asking Congress to legislate as such? Ultimately, the Treasury Department is just providing their perspective, but ultimately this is a question for lawmakers. Legislators imbue these offices of non-elected officials with their power. To me, I think this is going to be a pretty significant fight, and I'm not sure that Congress and the Senate is going to give up this authority easily. Fourth, all of this gets summed to the idea that you can't really have the stablecoin regulatory conversation without having the larger digital dollar or central bank digital currency conversation. Rohan Gray, who many of us disagree with frequently around crypto and stablecoins, but who is very consistent in his approaches and always articulate even if you disagree, in a recent interview with Coindesk said when asked how he would approach Gary Gensler's role specifically, quote, I would tell him to have a phone call with all of the banking regulators and tell them to do their jobs because it shouldn't be his job to fix the stablecoin industry. I think the securities regulation framework is already a losing framework. If you start at that point, you're at best getting a half loaf for putting it within a framework that is not actually able to deal with the major problems of the industry, which is that it's fueled by shadow money. Which gets back, of course, to what I was discussing before with Eurodollars and the recreation of the Eurodollar and shadow banking market on the internet. Fifth and finally though, for me, anything is better than nothing. This weird legal gray area around stablecoins needs to be hashed out. They are a huge part of the liquid crypto markets. It would be a major short-term knock to the space for them to be regulated out of existence in some way. It would disrupt trading, it would potentially undermine a huge array of DeFi protocols, but ultimately we'd get along. We got along with crypto-native trading pairs before. Remember, Bitcoin went up so much in 2017 in part because you had to buy Bitcoin to buy into ICOs. People weren't really using Tether yet for that type of purpose. In fact, I can see some sort of weird bifurcation if that worst-case scenario of these stablecoins being regulated out of existence coming to pass. Some would turn to Bitcoin or Ether pairs for trading, but for a lot of the functionality, particularly around DeFi, people would likely move to more exotic or even more questionable stables that are fully decentralized. This could ironically have the opposite effect that regulators want, which is the ability to reduce the risk of financial instability. All in all, though, it is time to get this sorted out for once and for all. Lucas Cheyenne tweeted, feels like we're getting close to some sort of clarity. Looking forward to the Treasury report, even more than being taxed on my unrealized gains. And boy, are those unrealized gains proposals something for another day. But for now, I appreciate you listening. I hope you're doing well. And until tomorrow, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.